Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. The following, following. the following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. We interrupt the Journey into Comics Network feed for this late-breaking edition of Four News, featuring Andrew Poor. Now, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode four of Poor News. Yes. Episode 4, Poor 4, just like I was doing on the Poor Poor for a short time last show I was on. The Poor Poor, which how a lot of you listeners have found me. So, jump right into the news for this week, which is not a shock, involves... There was a lot to talk about. And a lot that actually came out today, which I'm going to dive into. So, luckily I waited a little bit. Well, yesterday as you guys were listening to this. But luckily I kind of waited and did this a little bit later in the day, just because a lot of news came out in the past even 24 hours that are kind of worth talking about today. Now, first I want to jump into something I had saved. This is a bit of an old article, but I found it really interesting, so I thought I wanted to bring it up. And that is, there's a revolutionary treatment out there right now that uses HIV to reprogram cells into fighting cancer. But that headline, I know, just drawed me right in. I was like, what in the world is this about? So this treatment uh, uses a disabled version of the virus that causes AIDS to reprogram the genes of a person's immune system and retrain it to kill cancer cells. So, um, the article goes on to say, uh, Emma Whitehead, now age 7, was 5 years old when she was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Last spring, she was near death, having twice replaced her chemo- from having twice relapsed from chemotherapy. But this year, she's been in remission for 7 months, has started the second grade, and has regained her childhood, according to her parents. She will do so with a revolutionary new treatment that appears to have allowed her own immune system to fight cancer. The treatment uses a disabled version of the virus that causes AIDS to reprogram the genes of a person's immune system or retrain it to kill cancer cells. Researchers remove millions of the patient's T-cells, a type of white blood cell, and insert a new gene that would allow the T-cell to kill cancerous ones. Disabled HIV is used for the treatment because the virus is good at transmitting genetic material into T-cells. Then the engineered T-cells are pumped back into the body where they are intended to attack B-cells, which turn malignant during leukemia. Through engineered cells can't can stay in the body for years, though not the same level as when fighting the disease. Emma's just one of dozens of patients and only a few children that have had this treatment. It is imperfect. The treatment itself nearly killed the second grader. It also attacks healthy B cells, so Emma needed to take immune uh, globulins regularly in order to stave off infection. It's also extremely expensive, costing currently $20,000 without a profit margin. Scientists remain uncertain about why it works and why it does not in the same cases... Still research excited about the findings and hope to perfect it. Dr. Carl June, who leads the research team at the University of Pennsylvania, ultimately hopes the technique will eliminate the need for bone marrow transplants, which is now the last resort for people with Emma's kind of cancer. The results have been mixed. Three adults with chronic leukemia have since gone into remission with no further signs of the disease. One adult has been treated too soon for research to be sure about his progress. Four adults were moved but did not fully go into remission. One child relapsed after the treatment, and two adults, the procedure did not cause any progress whatsoever. So even though those not involved with the treatment say that it's a great promise because it has worked in hopeless cases, Novartis, a major pharmaceutical company, has committed to $20 million for research center that would be used to bring the treatment to market. 
The tumor was first developed at the University of Pennsylvania, while Emma received it at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Similar techniques are being used at the National Cancer Institute and the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So it's interesting how one thing that used to be a life sentence for certain people is now being used to stop a different life sentence for some people. So definitely showing the innovation that science can bring and maybe that not all pharmaceutical companies are bad, at least when they're developing their research. And as long as they don't put a 50 or 100 or 500% profit margin on this kind of procedure, then hopefully this will save a lot of lives in the long term. And moving from that to something that just kind of pissed me off. So this is from Fox News. This is Border Patrol agent admits to accidentally starting a 45,000 acre wildfire after gender reveal goes wrong. So a Border Patrol agent in Arizona has pleaded guilty to accidentally starting a massive wildfire last year while off-duty at his wife's gender reveal party. Dennis Dickey, 37 of Tucson, admitted Friday to igniting the Sam Sawmill fire which burned more than 45,000 acres and caused $8 million worth of damage in April of 2017. As part of the gender reveal, Dickey shot a rifle at a target containing tannerite at highly explosive suspense, which was meant to explode with colored powder upon impact. It was a complete accident, Dickey told Judge Friday, according to the New York Post. I absolutely horrible about it. It was probably one of the worst days of my life. Unusually high winds of around 40 miles per hour and lower than average rainfall contributed to the fire's growth, which took about a week to contain. Dickey, who immediately called the fire department and admitted to starting the fire, was charged with a misdemeanor for violating U.S. Forest Service regulations. He has been sentenced to five years probation and will require to pay $8,188,069 in restitution. We will also be making a public service announcement with the U.S. Forest Service concerning the cause of the fire. Yeah, I just... For one, I really hate the idea of a gender reveal. Like, I don't know why this became a new fad where it's like, oh, I need to have a pinata full of blue or pink confetti, or I need to make an explosion or light off fireworks. I get it. You want to make this a big ordeal to reveal a gender of your baby. I get it. But why does it need to be this big spectacle? Why can't it be as simple as, oh, this is a white, a cake with white icing that when we cut into it's going to reveal a blue or pink cake. Why can't it be as simple as that? Or something small, something that just doesn't involve burning 45,000 acres of forest in Arizona. Like, just use your head. Like, no one should involve, like, oh, this reveal of my baby, I'm going to shoot this gun at a giant ball of ignitable or combustible material to reveal the gender of my baby. No, just stop with this obnoxiousness. Like, this wasn't something that our parents did for us. This wasn't something that other people did. It's just bonkers. Like, if any of my friends out there are pregnant, anyone that's listening to the show are pregnant, just do something silver gender reveal. People are going to be excited either way. You don't need to make it a bigger deal. You don't need to have it in skywriting from an airplane. It's not like you're doing a... It's like those big promposal stuff or the really over-the-top wedding proposals. Like, keep it simple and intimate. It's what it was meant to be. It used to be that... The gender, reveal cons- the gender reveal usually involved you, your spouse, and the doctor that was telling you what the gender was. It didn't need to be this big to-do. And yeah, that's just annoying. Like, this is where this kind of stupid shenanigans goes wrong. And it just annoys me that something... They're probably like, oh, this will be great. I'll shoot a gun. It'll explode in colors and it'll look awesome. And then we get to go party and whatnot after. It's like, let's just set off napalm and then i'll have green and blue and pink and all these sparkles and then it'll be a big old like no just do something simple it's just a baby reveal it doesn't need to be this big 
pomp and circumstance event. All right, well, that's enough of that. Moving on to... Well, I'm going to save this article. I'm going to push this out to the end. I'm going to kind of save all this for... Um, since it's kind of related to what I want to talk about at the end. And this is involving someone else who kind of has been annoying me lately. And that is Michael Avenatti. The name you probably heard a lot of lately and then didn't hear anything about him even a year ago. He came into at least my public knowledge of his existence as Stormy Daniels' attorney. Stormy Daniels was the stripper. Uh, she was not. She was. A, I think she was just a stripper, a prostitute that was linked to Donald Trump. And there's that whole thing about the investigation. And then he has not left the public eye since this happened. He has been fighting tooth and nail, representing all this stuff, and posting on social media and all this, and just trying there. And then there's been like talks of him wanting to be run for president in 2020. Like. I don't know who this this guy thinks he is, but that is not how you become president. It may have worked once, but just stop. So, Democratic lawyer, this is the article from Slate. So, Democratic lawyer and prospective 2020 presidential candidate Michael Avenatti represents a woman named Julia Swetnick, who has made grave accusations of sexual misconduct against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Swetnick says she attended parties with Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge in the early 80s, at which the pair targeted girls who spiked drinks then took advantage of them sexually. She said she was raped by multiple people at one such gathering. Kavanaugh and Judge denied any involvement in such activities, and to be clear, Swenick did not say they were among the individuals who raped her. Merely they were present on the night she was attacked. Avenatti has handled these timely and serious allegations as if he was marketing a new Cloverfield movie. The woman, uh, he posted a picture on his social media that had hashtag truth, hashtag facts, hashtag courage, hashtag justice. Uh, showed a picture of two women. Uh, the woman on the right is NBC's Kate Snow, which makes this what it's is like the first ever instance of cryptic hashtag saturated promotional still being used to hype a news interview about being drugged and sexually assaulted. A nice tweet, which for a time appeared on his Twitter feed just below his pinned list of seemingly 2020-minded campaign positions, is not just in poor taste, it also highlights the tactical questionable way he's handled Swetnick's allegations. I've not even first publicized... Her account last Wednesday by posting her sworn declarations on Twitter. While such a formal document is credible in and of itself, NBC appeared to be the first media outlet that Swetnick has spoken to at length, and source told CNN's Brian Salter that never still verifying details related to her story. That means at least five days will have passed between the announcement of her allegations and the first independent reporting that includes an interview with her, five days during which Kavanaugh's nomination passed out of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the FBI reopened a background check into him that doesn't appear likely to address her claims. In the meantime, though, Avenatti did find time to tweet confrontationally at Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator Chuck Grassley, Fox News' Laura Ingram, said he'd enjoy embarrassing Ingram by bringing more information about Swenick to light, and NBC's Megyn Kelly. Wait, did I say five days? That's just who Avenatti has tweeted at since Sunday morning. Before that, he also picked fights related to Swetnick's charge with Senator Ted Cruz, Fox News legal pundit Alan Dershowitz, Fox News host Tucker Carlson, former Trump attorney Michael Cohen, and Donald Trump Jr., this openly partisan approach has had the predictable results of incentivizing Republicans who are calling the shots on the FBI investigation to ignore sweating allegations as the work of a porn lawyer. They would have wanted to ignore the allegations anyway, of course, but concerned that Kavanaugh's second accuser, Deborah Mears, who went publicly via New York New Yorker story that featured material supporting the plausibility of her story, subsequently was included on the list of witnesses to be contacted during the reopened FBI investigation. Ramirez, who lives in Colorado, has been represented by Boulder attorneys John Clune and Stanley Garnett and D.C. attorneys William Pittard. Public pressure to hear out Kavanaugh's first accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, who is represented by Democratic attorney Deborah Katz, but who came forward by speaking to the Washington Post. 
was strong enough that the Republicans invited her to testify before Congress. Not everything about the timing of Swetnick's case is under Avenatti's control, of course. She may have felt compelled to speak up in part to support the other women making allegations, but Avenatti doesn't have discretion over the way he discussed Swetnick's claims in public, and the way he's doing so indicates these sees them in large part as instrument which, with which to rally his liberal Twitter fans against Fox News and the Republican Party. In a confirmation process that hinges on the votes of moderate Republican Senators Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who are more likely to care about the opinions of independent voters than MSNBC loyalists, that's not just tasteless, it's self-defeating. Yeah, it seems like he's just stirring the pot and trying to push... He's, he's found something to latch on to to help push him, and that's why it's, uh, like this article says... Michael Avenatti is doing his best to make all this about Michael Avenatti, which it seems to be clear that case. He needs to disappear back into the hole he came out of. I'm just kind of sick of hearing about him. He's just a lawyer. You should be doing your job as a lawyer and not trying to propel yourself into the political atmosphere just because you made headlines in one pretty monumental case. Like, just stop. Like, I'm sick of these self-important people thinking that just because... They're in the public spotlight for doing their job that that entitles them to make the next step to be president. Like, just stick with what you're good at and stop throwing it down our throats. And moving on to something that kind of came out of nowhere that I really wasn't paying attention to all, and that involves that the U.S. and Canada struck a deal on replacing NAFTA at the last minute. And here's what you need to know. This is an article from Fortune magazine, so it kind of shows the business side of things. So NAFTA is dead, long live the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA, which is such a worse title. NAFTA was so easy to say. No, you can't... What are you going to say? USMCA? No, you have to say USMCA, which... Uh, that's... Rebranding, that's all it is. A little over a month after the US and Mexico struck a preliminary agreement on NAFTA's replacement, the US and Canada did the same late Sunday as hope. The timing means outgoing Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto gets to sign the USMCA into law just before leaving office. Today, Canada and the United States reached an agreement alongside Mexico on a new modernized trade agreement for the 21st century. The United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA, said U.S. Trade Representative Robert Leithizer and Canadian Foreign Amer Affairs Minister Christia Freeland in a joint statement. The statement reads, USMCA will give our workers, farmers, ranchers, and businesses a high-standard trade agreement that will result in freer markets, fairer trade, and robust economic growth in our region. It will strengthen the middle class and create good, well-paying jobs and new opportunities for the nearly half billion people who called North America home. We look forward to further deepening our close economic ties when this new agreement enters into force. As for what led the U.S.-Canadian negotiations to a successful finish, a U.S. official briefed reporters that the U.S. won greater access to the Canadian dairy market in part via an increase in Canadian dairy import quotas. Conversely, Canada won on its demand to maintain NAFTA's Chapter 19, Dispute resolution mechanism demand that the U.S. opposed because it saw the mechanism as infringing on U.S. sovereignty. Canada also got away without the imposition of hard limits on its auto exports to the U.S. However, according to CBC, the Canadians may still be subject to U.S. steel and aluminum tariffs that are keen to sell that issue before ratifying the USMCA. The New Deal reportedly also includes new elements on digital trade and intellectual property. The achievement of a trilateral trade deal makes it more likely the USMCA will gain approval in Congress, which gets to scrutinize the pact once the Leaders of all three countries have signed it by the end of November, after the election, just for you paying attention to the world of politics. If Congress, which may look very different after the looming midterms, fails to ratify the USMCA, it can't enter into force. So they're putting it off to the end of November because in case things happen with the midterms and there is a switch in, they may have to revisit this. But we'll have to see kind of how this shakes out in the end of November.
And Trump was already pretty excited about this and was already ready to kind of change the subject from the whole Kavanaugh thing. So I'm just going to hop on Twitter really quick and kind of tell you what he said today. And this is how the first thing I heard about it, just because I follow Donald Trump, because it kind of helps me see what in the world is going on in his head. So this article is from, as I'm recording, this is about 13 hours ago, which is, I think, early in the morning or like 6-ish a.m., so late last night our deadline, we reached a wonderful new trade deal with Canada to be added into the deal already reached with Mexico. The new name will be the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. It's a great deal for all three countries, solves the many deficiencies and mistakes in NAFTA, greatly opens markets to our farmers and manufacturers, reduces trade barriers to the U.S., and will bring all three great nations together in competition with the rest of the world. The USMCA is a historic transaction. Congratulations to Mexico and Canada. Then he held a news conference about it later that day, which I'll get into in a minute, because that's also some fun. So that's just Trump being like, hey, let's not talk about Kavanaugh, talk about something I did, that's great, and I can talk about it and say, I did this, even if it is just a smoothing out of NAFTA and a rename. But hey, that's how you make America great again. And speaking of that later press conference, um, there's only actually been one White House press briefing in the entire month of September, which is kind of weird because there used to be daily occurrences under previous administrations. So President Trump is talking with the press corps all the time, but his accessibility is increasing at the same time the White House press briefings are decreasing. For the entire month of September, a period jam-packed with presidential news, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders only held one on-camera briefing according to CNN's count. There's a new low for briefings, which are an almost daily occurrence in press administrations. Sanders has been cutting back on briefings for several months. The reductions coincide with the arrival of former Fox News co-president Bill Shine as Trump's deputy chief of staff for communications. Sanders held five briefings in June, three in July, and five in August. So the previous daily briefings have become a special occasion event. This whole briefing September was on the 10th. It lasted 44 minutes, but Council of Economic Advisors Chief Kevin Hassett spoke during most of the first half of the briefings about policies that have boosted the U.S. economy. The White House's strategy as of late is to put the Trump front and, is to put Trump front and center at the expense of an on-camera briefings from spokespeople. Reporters are always hungry for opportunities to pose questions to the president, Briefings have historically served a different and complementary purpose. On Sunday's Fox News Sunday, moderator Chris Wallace asked Sanders, are you thinking of ending the formal briefings? No, Sanders said, certainly we're going to continue to hold briefings. But she downplayed the value of the briefing by saying, we talked to the press a number of different ways, and she said Q&As with the president are infinitely better than talking to me. We try to do that a lot, and you've, been, you've seen us do that a lot over the last three weeks, and that's going to take place of a press briefing when you can talk to the president of the United States, she said. So in other words, she'll fill in sometimes when Trump does not take questions from the press corps. This is a marked different approach to the briefings that past generations adopted. During the Bush and Obama years, there were briefings on most days when the president was not traveling. It also changed from the early days of the Trump administration when Sean Spicer held regular briefings. Trump reportedly scrutinized Spicer's performance, and he sometimes publicly undermined statements Spicer made from the podium. The problem also has also cropped up in the 14 months that Sanders has been press secretary. Reporters tend to bemoan the White House press shop, stonewalling, and misleading statements, but the disappearance of the briefs is a significant change nonetheless. While leaving more of the talking to Trump may be politically expedient, it is disadvantageous to the press because the briefing format allows for different types of questions and a fuller range of questioners. Oliver Knox, the, former, uh, the president of the White House Correspondents Association, said on CNN's Reliable Sources last month that the briefing has both a symbolic and substantive importance. Is not the end-all and be-all of our work, but it symbolically shows that the most powerful political institution in America's life is not above being questioned. Knox said that the cutbacks to the briefings are particularly concerned to reporters from smaller news outlets like the folks who have 
had a harder time getting their emails returned by White House staff. The folks who don't have senior officials on speed dial, he said those reporters used to find there used to be a good space in which they could ask questions they might not be on the number one or two topic of the day, but are important nevertheless. Those topics are unlikely to come up when reporters holler questions at the president and informal Q&A session. On Monday, for example, Trump took questions during an event that was meant to tout his new trade agreement with Canada and Mexico, but he bristled when reporters tried to ask about non-trade topics. Eventually, though, he answered several questions about Kavanaugh's nomination at the Supreme Court. At a press briefing, reporters was, uh, would be able to ask about a myriad of other topics, even if they don't get satisfying answers. They can show that the question was asked. He said he had lobbied Sanders. Knox said he has lobbied Sanders about the reduction in briefings, and she's heard us out. Okay, so now, getting more into that press briefing, there were six weird moments from Trump's freewheeling comments about Kavanaugh during the USMCA press conference. President uh, Donald Trump visibly defended Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, implied that he'd has dirt on an unnamed Senate Democrat who he called pretty aggressive in very bad situation. He said he wants the FBI investigation to Kavanaugh to be quick and comprehensive, all while speaking to reporters Monday at a press conference that was initially about trade. What Kavanaugh's wife is going through, what his beautiful children are going through, is not describable. It is, it's not describable, it's not fair, Trump said. I think it's fair to do it to me because I've been going from day one long before I got to office. For me, it's part of my job description to handle this crap. President has become increasingly annoyed at the stalled process on Kavanaugh's nomination after multiple women came forward with sexual assault and misconduct allegations against him. The Senate called for a week-long investigation of the allegations on Friday, and Trump subsequently ordered the FBI to conduct it. There have been multiple reports of the White House is limiting the scope of the probe. On Monday, after discussing the new trade deal the U.S. had reached with Canada and Mexico, Trump took questions about Kavanaugh. Okay, you people want to get off trade, you people are falling asleep with trade, he said, almost egging on reporters to get to the Kavanaugh questions. All right, let's go, come on, Trump accused an unnamed senator of something. Uh, one of the most bizarre moments in the press conference came when Trump pointed out that lawmakers aren't angels and implied he has damaged information on certain Democratic senators, but he wouldn't say who. I'll tell you what I happen to know some United States senators on, one who is on the other side, who is pretty aggressive, he said, I've seen the person in very bad situations, okay, I've seen this person in very, very bad situations, somewhat compromising. Okay, I really hate trying to say what he says. He kind of, I don't know. Reporter later asked what he was referring to. He said, I think I'll save it for a book like everybody else and I'll write it. Trump replied, I'll, I'm not giving it to you. Trump went after specific Democrats too. Beyond the blind accusation of the unnamed Senator Trump, name checked a couple of specific Democratic lawmakers as well. He mentioned Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, who he said lied about Vietnam. Blumenthal made a handful of misleading or false claims about having served in the Vietnam War, but he said it was unintentional. He took a, took a swipe at New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, who he said ran Newark into the ground when he was mayor. Trump also went after Senator Dianne Feinstein, to whom Christine Blasley Ford sent a letter about her allegations in July and asked why the California Democrat hadn't made Ford's claim public earlier. If she wanted to throw an investigation, we had all the time in the world, he said. She didn't have to wait until after the hearing was closed, essentially. Trump said everyone had skeleton in their closets except the vice president. There are bad reporters. There are bad reports on everybody in here. Most of the people sitting down here, except for Mike Pence, by the way, he said to laughter. And if we find one on him, then I'm. That's going to be it. That'll be the greatest shock of all time. Uh, Trump said the FBI investigation is going fine. The White, uh, the Wall Street Journal, NBC News, and the New York Times reported over the weekend the White House was putting restrictions on FBI Kavanaugh's probe. Trump refuted the reports to Twitter and on Monday said that he was wants the investigation to go ahead as planned. What I said is, let the Senate decide whatever they want is okay with me and also the FBI. I think the FBI should do what they have to do to get the answer. 
Trump did point out Kavanaugh has undergone multiple FBI background investigations in the past. My White House will do whatever the senators want, he said. I'm open to whatever they want. The one thing I want is speed. Trump also said that if the FBI finds a witness who can corroborate one of Kavanaugh's accuser stories, he would look at it. I'm open, he said, adding that Kavanaugh is a fine man and a great scholar. Trump pointed out he doesn't drink and acknowledged that if he did, he would be the world's worst. There have been questions about whether Kavanaugh lied about his drinking while in high school and college. He said he has he didn't drink heavily while he was young, but others who knew him have refuted that claim. A reporter also asked Trump whether he would pull Kavanaugh's nomination if he lied about his drinking. Trump responded by taking talking about the facts that he doesn't drink. I don't think Kavanaugh lied, Trump said. I'm not a drinker. I can honestly say I've never had a beer in my life. It's one of my only good traits. I don't drink. In a brief moment of self-awareness, he acknowledged that alcohol would likely make his already volatile nature worse. Can you imagine if I had? What a mess I would be. I would be the world's worst. Um, during the end of the press conference, a reporter asked Trump if he had a plan B for Kavanaugh. Trump said he hopes he doesn't need a backup, but that he's approaching the situation with an open mind. The person that takes a position is going to be there for a long time, he said. Even so, the president said he worried about how Kavanaugh has been treated. I just think he's not sending person. I think he's been treated horribly. If you're going to bring up some of the subjects that were brought up, they didn't have to treat him so viciously and so violently as they've treated him, he said. Trump either said a reporter wasn't thanking or thinking. One more strange, awkward moment in the press conference came when Trump called ABC's called on ABC's Cecilia Vega. She's shocked that I picked her, Trump said, as she prepared to ask her questions. She's in a state of shock. I'm not. Thank you, Mr. President, Vega replied. That's okay, Trump replied. And then he said, I know you're not thinking or thanking. Uh, added, you never know. You never do. So... It could have mean that he said thanking. Because she said, I'm not thanking Mr. President. That's okay. I know you're not thanking or thinking you never do. So he may have meant to say thanking, but I know you're not thinking is kind of just choose your words. I think it might be a little blown out of proportion because Trump does kind of slur a little bit when he talks. And that could have easily been misconstrued, but still doesn't look good, especially with all everything else going on and. Yeah, just not not a great time. Um, so this is all kind of talk about the Brett Kavanaugh thing. I kind of saved it for the end there. So for those of you who didn't um, watch any of the hearings with either uh, Christine uh, Blasley Ford or Brett Kavanaugh, if you really don't want to go through and listen to all that, which even though I think you should do, you can always listen to the, um, the cold open of Saturday Night Live. It kind of gave you a nice condensed version of Brett Kavanaugh's reaction to the Christine Blasley Ford hearing. So... But here's the 10 takeaways that I uh, had compiled from this CNN article. Or that were compiled from the CNN article. The eyes of the country were on a small hearing room on Capitol Hill Thursday where Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford, the woman who has accused him of sexually assaulting her when they were both teenagers, testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The testimony was gripping and the whole hearing featured both Ford and Kavanaugh. is worth watching to get a full picture, but several moments of the theme and theme stood out. Um, this is basically the list here. Uh, Ford is credible. Uh, this strikes me as the first question anyone watching the hearing had to wonder. Before 11 days ago, no one outside of her family, social, and professional circles knew who she was. Now everyone knows who she is, but very few people had seen anything other than a single picture of her wearing clean glasses. We hadn't heard her voice, seen her mannerisms, and most importantly, we hadn't seen her tell the story of the night of 1982 in which she alleges that assault took place. Within a few minutes of her reading from her opening statement, it became clear that Ford was decidedly credible. She struck me as a normal person thrust into an impossible situation, someone 
who was doing what she believed is the right thing. Her voice shook, her breath was short. She was clearly fighting her emotions as she offered a specific and at times devastating recounting of the episode at the center of her claim. She was sympathetic when discussing how her life had been horribly jolted by her decision to come forward with her allegations. She told of having to stay in secure locales, at times separated from her family, and with security guards always around her. When I kept asking myself watching Ford's testimony and questioning is why would she be doing all this she didn't believe she was telling the truth? Why subject herself to all this? Why would her motive be for not telling the truth, as she remembers it about what happened that night in the early 1980s? Critics would argue that her motivators are political, but I just don't buy it, not in watching Ford's testimony. The manner of questioning is uh, not great. It was always going to be somewhat odd evening, given that the 11 Republicans on the Judiciary Committee had ceded their right to questions forward to an independent prosecutor named Rachel Mitchell. Democrats did not do the same. But, in the re- uh, but the reality has been very jarring. For five minutes, Mitchell goes through a meticulous checking of the story that Ford had told through a variety of mediums. Then suddenly Mitchell is interrupted by Senator Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, who tells her that the allotted five minutes is up. A Democratic senator then takes over, offering, at least to his point, undiluted praise for Ford's bravery. For a viewer, including the senator sitting on the Judiciary Committee, it makes the entire proceedings a bit difficult to follow. For Republicans who are clearly concerned about how it might look to have 11 men asking questions of a woman alleged sexual assault, the awkwardness of the back-and-forth questioning is something that someone they are willing to deal with given the alternative. Um, the other three was Grassley's tin ear. The, Repub- the reason Republican led by Grassley chose to bring in Mitch rather than to ask their own questions of Ford is because they didn't want to make themselves the story Thursday. But starting with his opening statement, the Iowa Republican is not doing very well in that regard. Grassley's opening statement sounded like a closing argument in which he said seemed to focus almost exclusively on how incredibly gracious he had been in trying to ensure that Ford had a chance to tell her story. He didn't help himself when he interrupted ranking member Diane Feinstein to make clear that he had planned to introduce Ford's curriculum even as Feinstein was doing so. On several other occasions within the first two hours of the hearing, Grassley repeatedly interjected himself to make clear how far his committee had bent over backwards to help Ford get to this day. Understanding his desire to defend his own behavior and conduct and that of the Senate Republican majority, but it rang as tone deaf to me watching. And maybe he figured that uh, during the first break in the hearing, got sword reporters, I don't think I can make any comments at all today. Maybe it's something I ought to sleep on. This is pretty important. We ought to be thinking about it a lot and not making nasty comments. Sorry, hasty comments. My apologies. Um, number four, Hatch's attractive gaffe. Ask how we believe Ford had done in the morning session of testimony. Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch said this. I don't think she's uncredible. I think she's an attractive, good witness. Asked what he meant. He said, in other words, she's pleasing. Still, just choose your words. When someone's speaking about past sexual assault, you don't use the word attractive in referring to her after she just told that. That's just really in bad taste. Amid the almost immediate fur caused by those comments, Hatch's communication director, Matt Whitlock, noted that Hatch uses attractive to describe personalities, not appearance. If you believe his past quotes, you'll see he's used it consistently for years for men and women he believes have compelling personalities. Which I'll take at face value, Hatch is an 84-year-old man who may occasionally use words and phrases that aren't regularly used in modern diction. But here's the thing. Context matters. If you're a sitting United States Senator who has spent an entire morning listening to Ford's testimony about the alleged sexual assault she endured as a teenager, you just can't use the word attractive or pleasing to describe her. You can't do it full stop. Like I just said. So, yeah, just don't do it. Uh, Mitchell swings and misses. Rachel Mitchell, the independent prosecutor brought in by Grassley to ask the questions on behalf of the Republican Senators, seemed to have two goals in her questioning. One, trying to find holes in Ford's story of the night in which she said that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her, and two, 
trying to find any sort of instance where Democrats urged Ford to come forward or coached her on her story or her testimony. Aside from Ford acknowledging that one of the two law firms that she wound up employing to represent her were recommended by Feinstein's office, Mitchell failed on both accounts. It was also very clear prosecutorial atones to Mitchell's approach to her questioning of Ford, which makes sense she's a prosecutor, but the decision by Grassley and presumably the other Senate Republicans to defer all their questioning to Mitchell ensured that outcome. And uh, number six, the silence of Senate Republicans. I get what prior Republicans cited that they couldn't risk the image of 11 men interviewing a woman on sexual assault allegations, but their silence throughout the four-plus hours of questioning of Ford was striking. The session of Grassley and a handful of small interjections from South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, no Republicans on the dais said anything. Which to me was a mistake. Why not let the nation see you thank Ford for willingness to testify or sympathize with the trauma she quite clearly experienced whether or not you believe she's telling the capital T truth of the matter? How could that not be a better move politically and as a human? Thanks simply putting Cindy in silence while a prosecutor questions Ford. Uh, number seven, Kavanaugh's angry and emotional opening statement. In the wake of Kavanaugh's interview with Fox News earlier this week, the, reporter, the reporting coming out of the White House suggests that President Donald Trump was unhappy with what he believed to be a wooden and lifeless performance by the Supreme Court nominee. Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh clearly took that criticism to heart. The first tenish minutes of his opening statement was delivered in something close to a yell. He blasted Democratic senators for what he insisted was a coordinated attempt to smear him. He invoked the Clintons. He called out Democratic members of the Judiciary Committee for calling him evil. He also insisted that he would never withdraw at the nominee, as the nominee and dared Democrats to vote him down. The performance was one that undoubtedly divided Trump. The question is whether Senate Republicans, first those in the Judiciary Committee, and then the broader GOP conference is convinced by Kavanaugh's anger. This seems the righteous indignation of a man who has been wrongly accused, or the lashing of a man who knows he is cornered, or somewhere in between. Number eight, no one is more outraged than Lindsey Graham. The South Carolina Republican senator came into Thursday's hearing mad as hell, and he stayed that way. Like there were more senior Republicans on the committee, Graham didn't cede his time to Mitchell, and said he used it to um, excoriate his Democratic colleagues for what he called the most unethical sham since I've been in politics. Bisley pointed at Democrats during the, this line. He added a message to his Republican colleagues, If you vote no, you are legitimizing the most typical thing I've ever seen in my time in politics. Let's say Graham's outrage at face value. Graham, grant him that he believes that Kavanaugh is being railroaded by false and defamatory accusations. Granted. But it is impossible to ignore the fact that Graham has faced primary challenges, primary challenges in each of his last two races, primaries in which he is attacked as being insufficiently conservative. Playing the attack dog role in these hearings is the sort of thing that conservatives who care deeply about judicial nominees will remember forever. The White House clearly noticed Lindsey Graham has more decency and courage than every Democratic member of the committee combined, tweeted Press Secretary Sanders, God bless him. Okay. Number nine, Republicans called an audible on Mitchell. The plan from the start of the hearing was that Mitchell would handle the questions on both Ford and Kavanaugh for the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee. As I noted above, that's what happened in the Ford questioning. Each Republican senator ceded their five minutes to Mitchell, and she pursued a largely unsuccessful attempt to poke holes in Ford's recollection of the night that assault happened. And that's how the Kavanaugh began in Kavanaugh's testimony. Mitchell asked a series of questions on Kavanaugh about his drinking habits, his calendar from 1982, and other details that uh, about that time of his life. Then suddenly it stopped. Graham began to trend, claiming his five minutes to lambast Democrats for their handling of allegations against Kavanaugh, then Texas Senator John Corwin followed suit, and Orrin Hatch of Utah, and Mike Lee in Nebraska's Ben Sass, and Idaho's Mike Rappo. Throughout all these Republican senators asking questions, Mitchell simply sat and waited. No explanation was given for why the initial plan to allow her to ask the questions that had been abandoned. The reason, at least to me, seemed somewhat obvious. Republicans saw that no hearing 
that the hearing both for testimony and the start of Kavanaugh's was heading in a bad direction for their side and their hope of salvage's nomination. So they decided to take matters into their own hands. I'm very interested to see if Republicans offer any other less political explanation for their decision to effectively call an audible in the middle of the most high-profile congressional hearings in decades. Uh, number 10, this was an utterly wrenching day. Wrenching day, sorry. From Ford's emotional testimony to Kavanaugh's clear anger, Thursday's hearings were a wrenching process. Ford testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee first and told of how she had been forced into hiding since coming forward publicly in an interview with Washington Post. I'm terrified, Ford said in her opening statement, and everything in her countenance attested to how incredibly difficult and painful her kind of those memories of alleged trauma were. Kavanaugh went next, saying that the accusations over the course of the past 11 days has made it like, he's, uh, like he could never coach his daughter's basketball team again, that he might never be able to teach at Harvard Law School again. This has destroyed my family and my good name, Kavanaugh said. This has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit. The reality of the event of the hearings was the same as when it started. There are simply no reasonable expectations that any of the senators on the district committee will be able after today to ascertain the capital T truth in this situation. And yet those same 21 senators, 11 Republicans, and 10 Democrats will almost assuredly be asked to vote in the not-too-distant future about whether Kavanaugh should be given a lifetime appointment to the most powerful court in the country. And here's where we get to the danger of the real danger of Kavanaugh's confirmation if the FBI can and will ask about it. So a brief FBI background check investigation of Judge Brett Kavanaugh is underway, and we're still trying to handle for the scope. President Trump has claimed the Bureau has free reign. One potential limit in particular could loom extremely large. The nature of both background checks and sexual misconduct allegations make it unlikely the FBI would ever turn up conclusive evidence one way or another about Christine Blasley Ford and Deborah Ramirez's allegation. The real danger for Kavanaugh, is, it would seem, is to whether he made any provable false statements while defending himself. In particular, Kavanaugh made a few claims about things he wrote in his high school yearbook that strained credul uh, credulity and they were contracted by classmates. Kavanaugh claimed the entry about being a renate alumnus wasn't an insulting reference to a female classmate, but clumsily intended to show affection. That, despite his lawyer previously saying it was about a kiss they had shared and four classmates disputing Kavanaugh's claim to the New York Times, Kavanaugh claimed that Boofed was a reference to flatulence and Devil's Triangle was a drinking game, shrugging off suggestions that they were sexual references. Classmates dispute those claims too, yet all classmates have also come forward to say that they began that he became aggressive when drunk, contradicting Kavanaugh's more benign characterization. It's easy to dismiss a yearbook comment as superfluous next to sexual assault allegations. They seem insignificant and even trivial. Those don't have direct bearing on whether he did the things he's accused of. But Kavanaugh chose to flatly deny their sexual interpretations in ways that have clearly rubbed people who were there at the time the wrong way. The idea that a renate alumnus entry was intended to show that she was one of us is an extremely difficult pill to swallow. We stack all these up next to each other. Kavanaugh made the tested made that tested the bounds of logic, including that the stolen Democratic emails during the Bush administration. It paints a picture of nominee for whom candor may be the biggest hurdle to con confirmation. But only the FBI actually asked about that. According to an ABC News report this week, and the Brewer has not been authorized to talk to classmates besides Mark Judge, nor has it been permitted to ask about the yearbook entries. While Trump denied there were limits on the probe, Republicans spent the week in defending the idea that it would be limited to actual allegations. They wanted the FBI to talk with witnesses that Dr. Ford named. Senator Lindsey Graham on, it said Sunday on ABC's This Week, they're going to Kavanaugh's friends, Mark Judge, do you ever see Brett Kavanaugh drug women or engage in gang rape? And that's going to be the focus of it. Investigators could obstinately ask Judge about the yearbook comments given he was so close to Kavanaugh at the time. If indeed the Renate alumnus boofed and Devil's Triangle were references 
were to sex, Judge would have to confirm or deny Kavanaugh's claims under penalty of making false statements to the FBI. It would seem easily to establish whether people close to Kavanaugh either affirm or contradict his claims. The Times clearly didn't have too much trouble finding people to dispute them. But Mark Zeta, Washington lawyer and an expert in federal background investigation, said he wouldn't expect the FBI to ask about it in under normal circumstances. It would seem a simple matter to ask Judge for his definitions, but I would think this is going to be an issue for the FBI is going to focus on. I wouldn't think this is going to be an issue the FBI is going to focus on. It's also to be difficult even if they did ask to establish a provably false statement. Even if Judge remembers Devil's Triangle differently, what does that really mean? Unless it is so fundamentally obvious as to what the term was used for by him and others, the yearbook line is an inside joke, which means verification will also be very difficult. He added that getting something wrong during testimony because of an accurate memory recollection doesn't necessarily equate to lying or false statements. It may be likely that this will wind up costing Kavanaugh, even if the FBI does inquire with Judge and others about it, but it seems to be about the only thing absent really compelling proof of sexual assault that could ruin his nomination. Whether it gets investigated may be well, the biggest subplot of this week's investigation and the most consequential one. So we're really going to have to see how this shakes off. We know it has moved off to committee. Um, we'll have to see what this investigation brings up. It brings up anything and then how the rest of the Senate votes for his confirmation. So that's kind of where we're at with this week's episode. I ranted a lot. I was kind of angry about some things. Next week will be Porn Entertainment, which will be different. You can definitely check out all the other shows. Uh, uh, Foodies Watching Movies is coming back tomorrow, so get excited for that. We talk about the movies we saw while we were on break and generally caught up, and it was the first one recorded in my home, so that's that was three shows uh, recently that have been recorded here, so definitely great stuff going on. You can check out all the other shows by going to journeyintocomics.com or checking us out at Journey to Comics on all the social networks and on all the podcast players out there. Uh, podcast for you, which I think is still being shown currently on Journey Comics also has its own feed at Podcast V. Uh, you can find all their stuff on their socials. You can go to our Patreon, all of that fun stuff, patreon.com slash journey into comics. That really does it for this week. I've ranted, I've raved, I've done the news. That's it for the poor news for this week. I am Andrew Poor. Have a great week.